After a week off for both Toronto FC and the podcast, we are back here on Footy Talks to preview the club's home opener against the New England Revolution. My name is Mitchell Tierney, and ahead on the show, a tough week for MLS sides in the CONCACAF Champions League. The latest on the Canadian men's national team as they release their roster for their big Nations League qualifier game against French Guyana, and more Canadian Premier League signings to chat about all of this and more with me this week james grossi of mlssoccer.com is back on the podcast james thanks for joining me as always oh mitchell anytime and i'm looking forward to it yeah well let's let's start with toronto fc as we often do on this podcast and uh heading into their home opener this weekend it, it kind of feels a, a little bit like there's uh, you know, a bit of a change in in kind of the feeling around the club right now. We went through a, a pretty ridiculously tough January where uh, it seemed like everything that could go wrong for the club did go wrong. And then uh, they start their season with, with those two tough lo- losses against, or I guess the one tough loss on aggregate against Independiente that... Um, you know, <laughs> I think there was a lot of pitchforks and, and torches that were starting to come out of the woodwork um, uh, from Toronto FC fans. But then, you know, they get that win against the Philadelphia Union to start the season. And it seems like the positive dominoes have kind of fallen since then. They're finally able to get their guy and Alejandro Pozuelo, who comes in as well. It seems like Josie Altidore is finally working his way back from injury. So uh, I guess you've been around the team a little bit in the lead up to these games. What's the mentality? Because like I said, it seems to have improved a lot from you know where it was uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I to be honest, I'm not sure if I've noticed a lot of a change in terms of, of what was going on around the group. Now, now in the general fan base and sort of the atmosphere around the club, I definitely agree. It's been a turbulent couple of months, and, and that series against Independiente did absolutely nothing to calm anybody's nerves who was worried <laughs> about... Uh, you know, what the ramifications of, of Sebastian Jovenko and Victor Vasquez sort of not being at the club. And, you know, I think if we look back at that first game against Independiente, that was just, they just sort of got punched in the nose and, and they couldn't respond. And, you know, normally in a situation like that, you really want to see a team sort of dig deep and, and find another level. And being where they were in the season, they just couldn't quite do it. I think the second leg, we saw a lot more of the mentality that we can expect to see from the group throughout this year. And then we saw more of that in uh, in the first match of the MLS season against Philadelphia. And, you know, if I had to sort of encapsulate it or, or sort of try and sum it up in, in a neat way, I would say, you know, I spent a lot of the offseason sort of trying to wrap my head around around just what happened to this team around sort of, uh, you know, what was it that went wrong in 2018? Where did they stray from? And, and it was really hard to get, you know, really good answers. But one of the things that sort of emerged from from Greg Vanny's comments over the months was that uh, he felt like the team sort of got away from. It's very cliched to say, and it's it's uh, it always draws a, a smirk from those of us in the uh, in the scrum whenever Vanny goes into his, his rants or his uh, his repetitions of sort of one day at a time, every day work to get better, focus on the next game, but. His, his explanation was that when Toronto FC focused so much on the Champions League, they started looking at at the results rather than at the process of how to get there. So they started looking at getting back into the playoff race. They started looking at 
you know, defending their supporters shield. They started looking at the, the end goal rather than focusing on the steps that you have to take in order to get there. And if there's one thing that we've sort of seen around the group in the last couple of days is, is that they know that it's, it's going to be a long season. They're not going to get there right away and it's going to take a lot of hard work and they have to approach every day with that sort of attitude. And, and so I think that's definitely something that we've sort of seen around the group the last little bit. It's been a little bit quiet with them off the last weekend. We, we haven't been up there quite as much. I was last up there on Tuesday. I think I'm heading up there tomorrow on Friday. So I will sort of keep an eye on it, but uh, you know, MLS seasons are, they're a long slog. The, uh, the word that everybody always brings up to describe them is the grind. And so, uh, you know, we'll see how the team sort of does when uh, when the real matches sort of start. Yeah, and definitely uh, definitely, t- kind of helping them as they as they kind of start to, to gear up here for, you know, the start of the season is that official signing of Alejandro Pozuelo. Of course, it's been rumored for such a long time, um, but, but finally made official. I mean... It's kind of old news now, but we haven't talked about it yet on the podcast and uh, haven't talked about, you know, where he'll integrate into the roster as well. Just a, a really big investment from the club. I mean, um, you know, what the fee, you know, the, the numbers we've heard are in excess of $10 million uh, in terms of a transfer fee and, you know, close to a four-year deal at something in the neighborhood of $4 million. So uh, a big investment and an impressive signing in the sense that they were able to lure a player away from, you know, a top side in Belgium, it's that player being the captain of that side. So uh, a very impressive designated player signing. And uh, I mean... There was there was some concern heading into this season, of course, and we talked about we've mentioned at least briefly, you know, a lot of the concerns that um, ha- have come up with with the way January went. Um, one of the concerns was that the club would not be, you know, spending the amount of money that they have in the past, and um, that that certainly doesn't appear to be the case. You know, this is obviously a, a big money signing for them, and also. Uh, you know, it, it's it's an interesting one because it's not it's not the name of a Giovinco or almost even a Bradley and Altidore just because you know how well they were known regionally. Um, but this is a player that make no doubt you know, you know is is one of the biggest signings in maybe the league's history in terms of um, you know where he comes from and and the caliber of player. Well, and what it took to sort of pry him out of the situation that he's yeah, currently too, in. Yeah. You know. Um... Yeah, it's finally done, eh? You know, we waited long enough. We we finally have an arrival date. I'm I'm not uh, you know going to hold my breath until he shows up in town. We'll still sort of see how that all works out. Uh, word is he's supposed to be reporting. Um, I think the day after after the TFC game this Sunday, so early next week. Though I did hear that he might have a couple of things that he needs to take care of before he moved over. So he might be a couple of days more than that. But we'll see. I think I think uh, is it Gent or Genk? I always forget which one. It is. Gent's the one that uh, Jonathan, Jonathan David plays yeah, for. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think they wrap up their season on Sunday, so it might not be until a couple of days after that that he ends up finally coming to Toronto. But, you know, one of the interesting things that emerged when they when they announced him last week was, uh, you know, we were speaking to, to Greg Vanny about it, and... Uh, he sort of he sort of filled us in on sort of how long they've been tracking Pozuelo, and we know we know Toronto FC scouting department does a, does a pretty thorough job of sort of identifying guys that the club sort of 
wants to be aware of in positions that they think they're interested in guys that sort of play the way the way that they would like to play and and mm-hmm. vanny told us that they've been tracking pozuelo since back when they first started looking at victor vasquez which would have been around the time that they ended up bringing in sebastian jovinko as a designated player and and once they used up their third dp spot on on jovinko and, and altor and bradley they sort of knew that pozuelo uh, just wasn't wasn't going to be an option anymore but they sort of kept an eye on him and then as soon as Jovinko decided to leave and that, that DP spot opens up, they sort of, you know, dust off the file that they have on him. They know <laughs> they know that he's in a situation where he's coming up on a contract year and it might be a possibility. And so they go out and get their guy. And, you know, we can we can talk a lot about about whether the team was prepared for this, about about how quickly they should have acted, um, all those sorts of things. But the fact that they sort of... Uh, have particular players in mind and there's not this sort of scattergun approach of like, Oh no, player X left. Now we need player Y to come in and replace him. It's sort of a, it speaks to how thorough they are. And I also think that you can't, you were never going to be able to replace a player like Sebastian Jovinko with one guy. You're sort of looking for guys to come in that have their own way of doing things. And, and the end result of that is that they, in doing what they do, they end up replacing the production that those other people would have left. And so Pozuelo isn't going to be the sort of pointy end of the spear the way that Jovinko was on a lot of plays. Ali Curtis sort of alluded to him as both somebody who can play the final ball in order to set up his teammates and, and somebody who will who will be a goal dangerous himself, whether it's on set pieces or whether it's from range or whether it's working his way into the box and so I think uh, I think Toronto got themselves a really tidy player. I, I have to admit I haven't seen a ton of them. I don't watch a lot of a lot of Belgian football, but uh, <laughs> the couple of little glimpses that we got from some Europa League matches once uh, the rumors started heating up uh, showed that he's going to be a really sort of interesting piece. And you know, one of the sort of uh, I guess we'll sort of I'll save this for for our chat in a couple of minutes here, but uh, it's going to be really interesting to see sort of how. Toronto adapts and evolves the way that they play. One thing that Vanny is very fond of saying is that, uh, you know, the team isn't built around any one player. The The way that they play isn't going to change. It's just the pieces that are involved and sort of how that, how that mix all shakes out in the end is what sort of changes. And so, you know, Pozuelo brings another really interesting piece to a team that that has a fair bit of attacking threat in it when you think of what Altidore can do and what the width can do with this team and, you know, what Michael Bradley now apparently can do when he arrives in the box late. And so I think when you mix this all together, it's going to be really, really interesting to see what it looks like. Yeah, so one designated player on the way and another one who looks like he could be closer to joining the fray, and that, of course, is Josie Altidore, who's recovering still from off-season um surgery to repair bone fragments in his foot and you know i've seen the pictures he's in training he's he's around the club right now um what's the latest we've heard on josie altidore and his possibility of of playing in the home opener i know there's i've heard some concern from fans about the fact that maybe you know toronto fc would be rushing him back for a home opener i don't think there should be any concern of that considering you know what greg vanny went through last year and what how cautious he's been with players injuries uh, i think josie altador if he if he plays on sunday uh he will be ready but uh what what do you, what is it looking like uh in terms of the possibility that he does play 
Yeah, when I was last up there on Tuesday, it, it appeared as though Josie was more or less in full training. We don't really get to watch all the sessions, so you can never be quite sure if a player is involved in every little aspect of it. And You know, when we asked Greg Vanny in the scrum afterwards what he thought, um, he didn't quite rule out Josie starting. He said he was optimistic that, that Altidore could play a role come Sunday. Now, to me, that sounds a little bit more like they would really like Josie to be on the bench as a possibility and maybe even just for the sort of moral support and, and that energy boost that, that you get from Altador. Um, there's no sense in rushing him back for this sort of thing uh, between the turf at, between the fact that they're training on turf up at the BMO training grounds and the fact that mm-hmm. BMO field is sort of in rough shape and Josie's coming off um, a foot injury with the sort of muscle issues that he's had in the past, it doesn't really strike me as as uh, worthwhile even to think about running him out there if for anything other than he is ready and and, and it's time to get going. But I sort of half expect that we'll uh, we'll see a little bit of something from Josie on the weekend. Although with anything like this, it's sort of uh, the way that Vanny has explained it. Um, in trying to trying to get a player back into the side is sort of like you you constantly push and you test a little bit and you you increase the workload and you sharpen up the movements and you sort of see how everything responds to that and so they'll be watching Altador really closely this week but I think if we see him at all it'll more likely be off the bench and it'll more likely be sort of a that sort of final 15 20 minutes I wouldn't even be surprised if if it's less of a because Toronto FC is chasing the game and needs a goal as it is sort of uh, just to, mm-hmm. to raise the atmosphere of the place. Uh, not that that will strictly be necessary, but I can just see it as being uh, something that will sort of uh, clear some of the some of the cobwebs out of everyone's head that we've seen over these past few months. I think one of the one of the it's sort of a cliche to say it, I know, but but Josie's been out for so long that that. To a certain extent, getting him back in the mix, getting him back in the 18, getting him back in that locker room on a regular basis, getting him back in full training all the time is sort of like getting a new player into the group. And uh, It'll be very, very interesting to see what this team looks like. As I was saying with the Pozuelo thing, uh, TFC will still go about their way. Vanny has his way that he wants to play, but Sebastian Jovinko was sort of in the center of that limelight all the time. And a lot of what the team did sort of went through Jovinko. And when they when they were out of ideas, the ball went to Jovinko. And, and a lot of attacks died on his foot because that's sort of the nature of being a high-risk, high-reward sort of player. And, and when it came to those really big moments when Toronto really needed somebody to step up, Josie was always there. And, you know, Vanny has even said he stressed this uh, when Josie re-signed, uh, got it week and a half ago, two weeks ago, all the time is melding together it was two weeks, in my brain yeah. right now. Uh, that Josie was going to be, <laughs> Josie's going to be the uh, the focal point of this attack. And so, you know, this team is going to look a little bit different. They'll still go about things the same way, as I said, but it'll be interesting to see how all those pieces come together. And, you know, Josie is, uh, he's a force up there at the front and he's, uh, he's done a lot. A lot of people like to, like to say that he's injury prone and he's missed a lot of time, but in his years here, he's, he's done more than, than produce his fair share. Yeah. I think our, our colleague Oliver Platt was saying that, you know, of players who have played significant minutes in MLS, I think he's something like third in, in terms of expected goals, uh, or goals per 90, actually, I believe the stat was. So yeah, he's, he's definitely, uh, 
been a producer when he's been on the field for Toronto FC. Um, and, you know, speaking of Toronto FC, of course, going into that home opener on Sunday, uh, St. Patrick's Day uh, against the New England Revolution, definitely going to be a, an, an interesting match for them to to start their home portion of the season in, in, at a BMO field that, you know, quite frankly, they weren't incredibly good at last season. I mean, BMO was such a fortress for them throughout 2016 and especially in 2017 when they went on that run. And uh, they, they dropped a lot of, I would say, unnecessary points at BMO field last year and a lot of concentration lost and uh, definitely did not help in, in the way um, their season went. So a chance here against the New England side that, they're winless so far. Their only points came in that 1-1 road draw with FC Dallas. Um, and they, they're a club that finished just one spot ahead of Toronto FC last year. I think five points up on them, if if I remember correctly. So uh, you'd think this is a decent opportunity to, to kind of continue um, the positive momentum for the Philadelphia Union game. And, and you know, if, if you can get the season off to, to a good start, then uh, it, it makes it easier, like you said, to, to focus kind of on that process and, and less on the results. Yeah, I think it's worth remembering that, like, one of the few positive moments towards the end of last season was Toronto's 4-1 win over the Revs. Um, I think it was back in September or it might even have been October. I can't quite recall, but... Um, that was a that was a day where where Toronto sort of looked like the old selves and like their old selves and and granted New England didn't really put up much of a fight that day but it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see sort of what the what the vibe is at BMO Field it, it has been a very turbulent off season and uh, I think a lot of people were disappointed that the Champions League sort of panned out the way that it did but you know opening day at BMO Field is still sort of a pretty special occasion it's a little bit strange mm-hmm. that it's on a sunday night and it's uh, <laughs> it looks like the weather's not going to be too bad so we have that to be thankful for but yeah i i think the thing that i'm sort of most curious to see out of this is how the team sort of responds to the inevitable disappointments that sort of happen in matches and and one of the flaws that sort of became overwhelming last year was the way that the team just could not could not find a way back into a match after the other team mm. scored the first goal. And that was sort of a, that was, an, it's, it's not particularly important. Like it, it does as a trend, it is something that, that helps you win games. If you score that first goal, it changes the nature of the game, but that can easily be erased if you're the kind of team that can overcome that disappointment and sort of still manage to go about your business and find a way to, to get results. And that was very much the team that we saw from Toronto in 2017. And so, I'm very curious to sort of keep an eye on, on that. I think we saw in Panama that they responded well to conceding that early goal for the next couple of minutes. And then when, when Terrence Boyd missed that penalty kick, they sort of managed to, to make it to halftime and then it all came sort of crashing down. <laughs> and then in that second leg, we saw them sort of come out well and, and get that first goal and never really quite managed to find the second one that really would have opened things up there. And And again, in Philadelphia, we saw them sort of managed to uh, to respond to the fact that they missed that penalty kick, which is which is undoubtedly going to become something that, that's going to haunt them over the course of this year is just their inability to make the most of those sort of what you expect to be a gimme opportunity on goal from, from 12 paces. So I am, uh, I'm curious to see what happens if, if New England scores first and, and the crowd doesn't really like it and, and how Toronto... I think that'll be the sign that tells me that that whatever happened last year is sort of behind them. Is that we see this be a team that 
that just sort of puts their head down and does what needs to be done in order to to get these results. Yeah, for sure. Um, let, let's talk about uh, something kind of, I guess, related to Toronto FC, more of a, a league topic as a whole, and that's just how badly things have, have gone for um, MLS so far in the in the CONCACAF Champions League this year. I think it was last year that uh, Mexican papers were saying how embarrassed they were by the fact that uh, MLS teams in this very same round ha- had beaten them three times in the first leg, and I think uh, New York and Toronto ended up getting through um, at that point and you know at that time it kind of seemed like the the gap between the two leagues had been bridged a little bit but now Atlanta United they lose 3-1 on aggregate to Monterey Houston Dynamo 3-0 to Tigres and uh, the New York Red Bulls 2 or 6-2 to, to Santos Laguna the only side remaining is Sporting KC who uh, I guess by the time this podcast comes out we'll know uh, how they d- they did but they are currently trailing 2-1 to that same Independiente side that uh, everyone so heavily criticized Toronto FC for uh, losing to um, it's you know it's it's been a reminder for me of two things one um, that that gap still definitely does exist between these two leagues and probably won't close until uh, you know MLS maybe opens up a little bit more for investment in terms of especially being able to uh, improve the depth of some of these teams and, and some of those depth signings. Uh, you know, I think that it's getting a little closer to MLS being able to fill, field something of a similar 11 to what these Liga MX teams can do, but uh, the depth off the bench is, is not necessarily very close between the two leagues. Um, the other thing is just how special that run was last year for Toronto FC and just how incredibly dialed in and perfect um, they were. I think, uh, again, to mention our colleague Oliver Platt, he had the stat that um, MLS sides have only moved on uh, three times in this competition when the second leg's been in Mexico. Toronto FC did it twice and then lost once on penalties, and uh, Sporting KC did it again this year. So uh, it just goes to show how great Toronto FC were last year and um, how difficult it is, even for a club like Atlanta United, who everyone you know is kind of hoisted up as as the golden boys to uh, be able to you know continue to have success in this competition even after what they did last year in MLS. Yeah, I I think the lesson the lesson from from this year there's there's a couple of lessons, but I think the first one is sort of on the grand scheme. You know, success and progress are never going to be a linear thing. Um, if we're sort of if we're sort of reading what Toronto did in the Champions League last year and trying to say that that is going to determine how MLS that there will be any relevance from that to how an MLS team will do in the following year when we're just we're underselling all the sort of situational factors that come into play, you know, whether it's mm-hmm. whether it's the team is in form, whether there are injuries, whether they've, you know, put in the work to be ready for these matches early in the season. There were so many sort of little things that had to go right for Toronto to do what they did. And, and if we think that that necessarily means that the next year that Houston is doing something, then, then I think we're sort of missing the point of, of, how specific every match is to the situation around which it is. And so I think there's that element in terms of, you know, we get the, we had our CCL fever every year and, and <laughs> it's only sort of natural to sort of think that, Oh, maybe this year will be the year. It was so close last year, but uh, you know, the, uh, the disappointment of CONCACAF is something that we should all be very used to at this point. But I think that said, that said, um, I still think you could make a case that that MLS teams have made pretty big strides when it comes to to being able to play against these Mexican teams. As you said, 
you know, the first 11, while it's, it's not comparable, it's competitive. Mm-hmm. You know, the depth after that, as you said, is also is where it really sort of breaks down. But, but I think the, I think the real key, and we saw this with New York in that second leg, and we saw this with Atlanta in their first leg in the, in these most recent ties that, you know, you have to be plugged in for 95 minutes, 90, whatever, however long this game is. You can't sort of switch off for a couple of minutes or else these Mexican teams will absolutely put you to the sword and they will be mm-hmm. ruthless. And that's always been sort of uh, sort of the, the flaw with MLS teams. You need too many chances. I, I was watching the Houston game the other night and Tommy McNamara had a couple of really, really good looks sort of early on where the Mexican team slipped up and, and you have to punish them in those situations. And I think that's what we saw Toronto FC do in their run. You know, when uh, when you make a foul around your box, Sebastian Jovinko puts that in. When you let a ball get to the near post, Jonathan Osorio gets on the end of it. When you don't read Marky Delgado's pass off of a weird divot on a terrible field, then Josie Altador <laughs> gets in. And you need to be absolutely cutthroat in this competition and the Mexican teams are just able to do that more regularly than MLS teams are. And, you know, but that said, Houston was on the pitch for, for 75 minutes and, and they went toe to toe. Red Bulls were able to, you know, pop Santos on the nose for a little bit in that, in that second leg the other night. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's there, it's getting closer, but it's just those sort of fine details and that ability to really make the other team pay that, that, that gap is so obvious and, and that really comes down to just having players who can execute and having the depth where you can weather those situations and make them less of a factor. And, you know, the the whole schedule, this this competition coming at the beginning of the year, the whole fact that MLS rosters are, are severely con- constrained compared to how much Mexican teams can spend, uh, all of those are definitely factors. But you're, uh, we're seeing MLS teams make it a little bit more interesting. You know, I think the days of of 6-0 blowouts and under-21 teams getting trotted out are sort of over. Or at least for the most part, they're over. You never want to say never when it comes to mm-hmm. those things. But, uh, you know, the fever will start anew next year, depending on what uh, Kansas City gets up to, and I'm sure we'll all fall for it again. <laughs> yeah, I can't... Uh... <laughs> Can never get over that Concacaf fever. It only it only lies dormant for a little while during the uh, during the summer months. Uh, but yeah, it definitely it definitely comes back every year. And um, as as we kind of continue the conversation about MLS and, and move on to our Canadian soccer uh, segment as well, a couple of debuts uh, in MLS for some Canadian players that uh, I did want to mention. Um, those being uh, Tejon Buchanan, who's a twenty year old. Um, he went ninth overall out of Syracuse University. Fell a little bit in the the draft of the New England Revolution. Uh, he was he was a player that on a lot of the mock drafts and uh, again MLS mock drafts are uh, you take them with the biggest grain of salt because I, I don't think I've ever seen one that's you know even close to accurate just because things seem to change so much and it seems to be a lot more about fit and preference in MLS versus uh, you know what you'd look for in maybe some of the other uh, major sports drafts. But uh, at any rate uh he he fell a little bit but uh, seems to be carving out a decent uh, start for himself uh with New England and then uh maybe even the bigger surprise is his Syracuse University teammate uh, 21 year old uh, Kamal Miller um he's played all the minutes or every minute this year so far and of course just two games in for Orlando City um that's probably the player that I think Canadian men's national team fans will be keying on it 
especially so far, um, mostly because he, he does play that center back position that uh, Canada so desperately could use a player at right now. Yeah, I have to admit, I didn't see a lot of Miller over, over the past couple of weekends. You know, Orlando City is just not quite on my list of, of must-watch MLS games <laughs> at the what. moment. <laughs> uh, that said, you know, you can Not never... nanny guy. <laughs> yeah, you can never have enough nanny in your life, but you can only take so much of it on uh, on repeat before it sort of seems uh, pointless. And that's it, like, there are just so many games these weekends. But he's of definitely course, yeah. somebody I'm going to keep a sort of eye on and see, see how it goes. I think... Uh, it's particularly interesting that uh, that James O'Connor seems to be willing to give him a chance. You know, Orlando's a team that's sort of been a bit of a mess these past few seasons. And, and if there's a coach on a hot seat, sort of, uh, Orlando hasn't particularly shown themselves to be patient and let a coach sort of make decisions that are in the interest of the club in the long term. There's a lot of short-term thinking going on there. And, you know, with with Will Johnson there and with Tesho there, there's there's a nice little Canadian sort of uh, core building down in Atlanta, mm-hmm. which makes a certain amount of sense given it's uh, you know February, March, and and that's where a lot of Canadians end up this time <laughs> of year, anyways. So good point. It's it's uh, it's definitely something to keep an eye on. He he seems to actually have the game on now, a replay of it, just sort of keeping an eye on it in the background. I did catch a fair bit more of Buchanan's ten minute cameo though, so. Mm-hmm. Might be able to speak a little more uh, intelligently about him, I suppose. Yeah. So, what do you what did you see uh, from Buchanan? Because uh, you know everything I've heard about him is that he has all sorts of talents, uh, talent, but just a little raw, which I guess is what you would kind of expect for for a player coming out of the the university system, especially. Yeah, exactly. He looked he looked raw. He looked uh, he looked a little smallish. In the sort of sense of, uh, you know, he looks like a 21-year-old going up against, you know, grizzled MLS center backs in Columbus there. But he was very, very lively in it. He, he had a really good chance where he ended up snatching at the shot in the last couple of moments there. But it, but he did well to sort of create that space for mm-hmm. himself to get that shot off. And if he had managed to sort of keep it on target, aiming for that far post, he would have he would have troubled Zach Steffen with it a little bit and, you know, put his side in with a chance for. Uh, a chance to pull equal before uh, Columbus added their second one on the day. And so, you know, it's always going to be baby steps with these guys. It's always going to be a matter of, of them sort of adjusting their, their lives, their schedules, their bodies, everything to sort of what it means to be a professional for the 11 months of the year that an MLS schedule entails. But, you know, speaking very generally for both of them, I think the fact that they've been getting this opportunity so early in a season is a, uh, it can only be a positive in the sense that, you know, a lot of times we see guys get drafted and they're sort of just roster fodder. They're not really there mm-hmm. to get minutes. They're sort of the, just there to to fill spaces and to, and to be warm bodies for training. And, and for both of them to sort of get chances with their sides through these early couple of weeks means that they've done enough in, in training to sort of remind the coach that they're there and they deserve an opportunity. And, uh, you know, so we'll, it'll be something to keep an eye on over the course of the year for sure. Yeah, it'd certainly be nice to to see Tejan get maybe some minutes uh, this weekend, you know, close to his hometown of Brampton, because, of course, he's a Canadian soccer player from Brampton. That seems to be uh, where they all come from uh, nowadays. Just, you know, <laughs> such a good soccer community there. Um Let's talk a bit about the uh, Canadian men's national team roster that was released uh, for their March 24th friendly 
against French, or not friendly rather, uh, Nation League qualifier. Uh, I'm so used to there being friendlies now that we actually have uh, some important games here. And this one is very important, I think, which is why, um, you know, it is a big deal that John Herdman uh, names such a solid roster. Uh, you know, uh, obviously we know what's on the line Gold Cup qualifying basically guaranteed at this point, but uh, that spot in the Nations A-League, look, I think Canada's got a pretty good opportunity of that, but maybe even more important is the fact that this is kind of, um, you know, your last major chance to bring all of these players together before the Gold Cup. You know, you'd hope that they have some kind of friendly in camp uh, leading up to the Gold Cup, but this is the last majorly competitive game they're going to be playing in uh, before that, before that you know, big tournament that's really going to be John Herdman's first test as Canadian men's national team manager. So he'll get a look at the players, and and this is basically everyone's here, um, and get a chance to kind of dial down his system and, and which, which of these many talented players he wants to start. Um, it, it's going to be interesting to see what how Canada lines up against this French Guyana team, and, and I guess who... Um, you know, who he starts because, like I said, he's got a wealth of options that I don't think um, many other, if any other, Canadian men's national team coaches have ever had before. Yeah, it's been a while since we've been looking at a, looking at a lineup and, and figuring out who the best 11 are, looking at a roster and trying to figure out who the best 11 are. It's, it's mm-hmm. pretty much, at least in the midfield and up top, you pretty much can't go wrong in terms of, of plugging and playing players. Uh, at the back, it's a little bit more dicey, but I mean, that's sort of... Uh, we li- we're living in strange days when it comes to Canadian soccer. But uh, I think you make a good point about, about him using this window really wisely to get everyone together. It's always We always tend to focus on sort of the matches during these international breaks, and there's been some criticism of Canada for not not using these opportunities to get friendlies in. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I think when you're when you're trying to build up a program the way that Herdman is and you're trying to, to create not just a sort of, not just a team that can go in and play the matches, but really sort of foster a, a positive environment where players sort of want to come and where players are able to perform at their best and where they feel like it's, it's that home away from home. Uh, we we underestimate just how important it is to get these players together and get them hanging out and get them all on the same page and get them all telling the same stories. And so, you know, you can say that, that these CONCACAF Nations League qualifier games were sort of a walk in the park. And you can say that, oh, maybe, maybe he should use these games to call in a, a wider pool of guys. But if he's narrowed down his group to this group, I think... You can't go wrong by having these guys spend more and more time together and start building those bonds that you're sort of hoping are going to lead you through a successful Gold Cup and into the Nations League. And then from there, who, who sort of knows? Um, Herdman's been very bold, and, and the players have, have very much bought into this idea that Canada's not just aiming for 2022. They're, I mean, for 2026, they're aiming for 2022 mm-hmm. as well. They're aiming to qualify for that World Cup. And, you know, these are the sort of matches where... Uh, where you lay the foundation for those sort of future successes. And so, you know, there were a couple of little surprises. I think there's only really one surprise in this roster. I think, you know, we all expected Mark Anthony K to be back in the mix as soon as he was healthy. And mm-hmm. he looked fantastic for LAFC in, in their dismantling of Portland the other day, uh, even if that midfield is getting a little bit crowded these days. But uh, <laughs> I think Will Johnson's inclusion sort of caught me a little off guard. I just wasn't quite expecting it. 
but I think it's good for Will. He's he's been a, a good servant to Canada, and he's a uh, he's a very tough guy. And I actually have a little bit of a theory on why it was important to have Will Johnson come into this match. If you'd like to hear it, I absolutely would. Um, this is a little bit that's pure speculation, which I normally try to avoid doing on mm-hmm. tape. But uh, you know, Will Will is one of the last guys who's sort of an active member of the national team pool who was actually in Honduras for that 81 loss mm. way back in the 2014 cycle. And, and if we, if we pair away all the embarrassing stuff about that and how close Canada was, that was, that was such an epic example of a team sort of falling at that last hurdle. You know, yeah. Canada, Canada had done ah. everything that they needed to do in order to put themselves in that position. Now we can talk about the the draw with El Salvador at home. And if you had done your business there, you wouldn't be in that situation where you needed to go mm-hmm. to Honduras. But Johnson was there and, and he saw sort of how things can crumble when you're not tuned in a hundred percent. And so I wonder if, if Herdman, Herdman is a guy that, that likes to tell stories and, and he likes to get everybody on the same page and he likes to have people experience things through people who have actually lived through those things. And so it would be really easy for Canada to come into this match and presume that, oh, they're already in the Gold Cup. They're already in, uh, they're already in CONCACAF League A. Uh, they were, they're already, this, this would be a, a really, it would be very easy for Canada to come into this situation and, and sort of take their foot off the gas a little bit. They're already in the gold cup. They're already possibly, you know, in that group a for when the nation's league proper kicks off. And it would be really easy for a young group that sort of hasn't done this a lot before to sort of, you know, coast into the next match. And and one of the things that Herdman has been very adamant about is that this is a team that, that isn't going to do that anymore. They're going to play for the 90 minutes. They're going to play from minute to minute. They're going to, they're going to go out there to win. They want to top this group. And the way that you top this group is you, you take this last match and you put French Guiana to the sword and you score a lot of goals. And that's how you ensure yourself that you're in the next <laughs> round. And, and not only do you ensure yourself for that, but you carry that momentum and you carry that confidence into the next round. And so I think Will Johnson as a guy who was sort of there at, at one of the worst moments in, in Canadian soccer history, at least in recent years. I think he's somebody that has an important lesson to tell this young group as they sort of move on to the next phase. And so it's a it's a little bit it's actually it's very much speculation on my part. I haven't heard I haven't heard anything to that effect, but but Will is a, he's a pretty fierce competitor and and if he sees people sort of slacking off or not approaching things in the right way, he even if he hasn't been a part of this group for very long, he's definitely somebody that'll let people know. And so I kind of see that as a bit of the motivation for why he's in this group. Yeah, I like that theory. And yeah, you can definitely see why Will Johnson and, and Michael Bradley are such good friends, considering, uh, you know, the, the competitive spirit between the, the two of them. Um, yeah, like like you mentioned, I think Mark Anthony Kay is the name that obviously um, stands out to me, like you said, he was always going to come back in once he once he returned uh, into the roster. But he's been so good for LAFC so far. Scored a goal and and great for him. I mean, he really looks like a player who's been able to to get right back to the form he was under uh, before he got injured. So that's great news for Canada uh, as he adds yet another option to that John Herdman midfield. And I think potentially an option that. 
um, you know, he could be one of those starters there. Uh, let's move on to some other Canadian signings uh, that, that have taken place in the Canadian Premier League. Um, just a couple of interesting signings that I wanted to, to key in on as, as we continue to get closer to that opening day kickoff and the first one I wanted to talk about was Issei Nakajima Fran, a Canadian men's national team veteran, kind of the second one to sign or the third one rather to sign with uh, Pacific FC with uh, Marcus Haber and Marcel de Jong combining for what's a very good roster there. That's one of the most impressive uh, outfits um, you know in in the CanPL so far in terms of the roster they're building. Uh, he's an interesting story because I, I've talked to him at length throughout uh, the, you know, his time in going to Malaysia and, and leaving MLS just about, um, you know, how, I guess how disappointed he was coming over here thinking he would be treated like a, you know, a Canadian player on a Canadian team, thinking he'd kind of be a hometown player and, and finally feel at home with a club and then he gets traded on his birthday and uh, Montreal doesn't necessarily have plans for him once he gets traded there. Um, you know, obviously there's a, there's plenty of sides to every story, but uh, the fact that he's come back and and you know given this league kind of an endorsement, I think is is a positive for maybe what this league is going to do for Canadian players because, like I said, this was someone who uh, at home has has felt like he's gotten you know the raw end of the the stick kind of, and now he's back and and looking for a new opportunity here in Canada. So that's that's kind of exciting. Yeah, I mean, aside from having the most interesting man in Canadian football back in the country and back being somebody <laughs> we can sort of talk to and, and hear about all of his experiences and, and just sort of see what he gets up to. Um, I think, as you said, the fact that, that his last sort of experience here was sort of soured by the way that it that it turned out and that now he's getting this another chance to play at home and, and to be recognized for the, for the player that he is and the man that he is back in his home country and you know, I think you and I talked about this before, uh, whether it was on here or in the press box, just sort of how strange it is that a guy like Atiba Hutchinson, who may be, you know, one of the one of the best athletes that this country has ever produced in terms of what he's been able to achieve, where he's been able to achieve it. And, you know, Atiba could walk down the street here in Toronto and, and one in a hundred people might know who he is, one in a thousand. Like, it's probably, yeah, it's probably closer to that second figure, I think. Yeah, it's one of the depressing things about this country that, uh, you know, when Canada was in town for their last Nations League qualifier match, I, I was uh, I was down at the team hotel uh, sort of to do a couple interviews just as they arrived downtown in Toronto. And mm-hmm. and as I was uh, as I was leaving, you see, uh, you know, Daniil Henry and uh, and uh, Junior Hoylet sort of walking down, walking down Bloor Street out to go do some shopping or grab some lunch or something like that. And yeah, you know nobody batted an eye, and uh, if this was any other country in the world, and and or <laughs> even if this was Canada and it was a hockey player who was walking down the street, uh, that recognition would be there. And so for a guy who's who's chased his dream of playing this game all around the world and has all the all the scars and monkey bites and uh, all that <laughs> sort of stuff too. Uh, if you haven't read our, our friend Armin's uh, double feature over at the Campiel website, make sure you go check it out. It's wonderful. Uh, for him to get back here and, and be a part of something that's that's clearly going to be a, a fascinating and special sort of season in the CPL is just uh, that's the kind of story you sort of want for Canadian soccer. For too long we've been uh, for too long it's been on the back burner and, and we've had to to see people sort of claw their way 
into the professional game and battle really hard through all of these leagues where they're just totally off of our of our radar and and so for a guy like him to to be able to sort of see out the end of his career in this way with a team that as you say is shaping up to be really really interesting out of pacific is uh it's only good for the game man and uh the more nakajima Ferran we have in our lives i think the better off we all are yeah, and the, the last signing I wanted to highlight um, for the Canadian Premier League was Quillen Roberts uh, signing with Forge FC. Um, you know, a player who's obviously been in Toronto FC's system. Uh, I don't think people necessarily remember how close he was. It, it was almost just a timing thing, if, if I remember correctly, in terms of Alex Bono getting the... Uh, getting the chance over him after uh, the the injury to Clint Irwin because you know out of camp that year Quillam Roberts was was the number two he got sent down mostly to to play minutes and I know Toronto FC was very high on Alex Bono and you know maybe he would have gotten that chance eventually but Quillam Roberts is is a player who was very close to you know playing MLS minutes and uh, things didn't necessarily work out for him in Toronto or uh, with LAFC either where he was very briefly but. Uh, this is still a player with a lot of potential. He spent time with the national team at at all levels, and um, if there's you know one of those players that could potentially be a bit of a uh, you know a reclamation project for this league, um, Quillen Roberts is is right up there in, in terms of you know players who at least I'll be watching uh, for you know making the most of their potential with an opportunity that's really well suited for them. Yeah, I, I thought it was quite the coup uh, from Forge and Bobby Smirniotis to get to get Quillen Roberts to to come into town and, and to be their keeper. But you know, if anyone thinks that anything's going to be handed to him, uh, that's very much not the impression that I've gotten. They have uh, they have a second keeper in Tristan Henry, a guy who played at Sigma that that Bobby knows very well. And mm-hmm. you know, I I even sort of mentioned to Quillen like how how good did it sort of I I should say I spoke to him about a week and a half ago. Um, and I mentioned to him like like how nice is it going to be to sort of be able to get a run of games and to, and to sort of know have some stability in your career after the sort of wandering that that he's gone on. And he was very straightforward that you know everyone is still battling for places. Nobody's earned the right to start for this team yet. And then even even if you do start the first couple of games, by no means does that mean that you're guaranteed to be the number one. And I'm glad you brought up that point about about how much of a coin toss it was between Bono and Roberts way back in the day for TFC. If I remember it correctly, the two of them were sort of almost taking turns in terms of who was down with TFC2 getting minutes, the minutes that they need to keep developing, and who was on the bench backing up Clint Irwin. It just so happened that when Irwin got injured in Orlando, Alex Bono was was on the bench that day and, and sort of, you know, Q ends up sort of wandering for another couple of years out in the wilderness, and, and Bono mm-hmm. ends up being the starting keeper that leads TFC to a, an MLS Cup. And so, uh, those are sort of the the funny things about about a career, and, and I guess you could say in life in general is that, you know, sometimes sometimes the tiniest little things that seem sort of insignificant can end up having massive uh, massive side effects. But you know, another guy that that we've all sort of had an eye on over these last couple of years. I think that's, if I'm being straightforward, I think that's one of the things that I'm most excited about for the Canadian Premier League is that, you know, there have been so many of these players that, that pop up on our radar every every year for, for a couple of days or, or for a week or when the national team is relevant because they have a tournament coming up or there's qualifying going on. And then for the other 360 days of the year, they're, they're just, they disappear. 
they're they're mm-hmm. off of our radar and we have no way to watch them and you know i haven't seen marcus haber do his thing in a long time i haven't seen randy and weenie bombs play in, in many years there are there are so many of these guys that are sort of rattling around in the brains of all the canadian soccer fans that have been following <laughs> along with uh with you know the Voyagers form and and with all the sort of uh, assorted ramblings that they're all are all over the internet and uh, we're finally going to have that chance to sort of actually see these guys play live, play in person, play week in week out and and not only is that good for for their development as players on the field but but for the development of the things away from the game that I think are sometimes just as important, uh, maybe not just as important but ancillary in importance is is that sort of the ability to have figures that who, when they walk down the street now, when Quillen walks down the street in Hamilton now, people will know that that is the goalkeeper for Forge FC. And that's sort of a, a profile that, that's been lacking for far too long in this country. And so, you know, I, uh, I'm i very much looking forward to the league starting up. I think things are shaping up nicely. We've, we're starting to see what most of the rosters sort of look like, a little bit of fine tweaking here and there. I just think uh, we can't wait until those matches start, man. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'm. You know, it, it continues to get more and more real uh, as we as we get closer, and now you can start to to picture maybe some of the battles that will be taking place on the field between the between the clubs and some of the faces that will be uh, you know doing battle. So that just makes it even more exciting. Um, we're we're gonna wrap up the show there, uh, James. Thank you so much for taking the time this week. Oh, my pleasure as always, Mitchell. And to everyone else, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the weekend. And uh, Toronto FC's home opener, we'll have plenty of coverage of that on next week's edition of the podcast.